Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. Um, yeah, there's quite, there's a the second half of a panel discussion um, happening today. Last Monday, you heard the first half of a panel discussion um, about transformative justice and community accountability. And that was run by Undercurrents Victoria. Today we'll be listening to the second half of the um, the discussion. And each speaker will be introduced. If you missed last week, you can always jump on the 3CR website and have a look at the podcast of the Do and Time show and you can hear that first half. So we'll be um, playing, first of all, um, Ada Comroy, who has worked um, in the domestic violence sector. And after that, we'll do Anthony Kelly. We'll broadcast him. He's from the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre. He's the executive officer there. And after that, we'll sp- we'll have um, Anthony Lickus, who is involved with the AIDS Council and has done some wonderful work um, with with um, with all sorts of communities. And thanks once again to Iris from Queering the Air, who um, prepared this material. So yeah, I'll be um, playing first up um, Ada Comroy, and each speaker will be introduced. Stay tuned. Um, Ada Conroy has worked in women's services for over 18 years, specialising in family violence. She is currently a family violence trainer, um, men's behaviour change practitioner, and provides clinical supervision for family violence practitioners. Ada will discuss core beliefs held by male perpetrators and how we can identify attitudes that underpin abusive behaviours and um, support violence against women. Thank you so much for having me. I feel... um very happy to be here, even though it's a Monday night and I have things to watch in bed. But I'll get to that a little bit later. Um, so I'm Ada. Um, I'm here to talk about uh, core beliefs held by male perpetrators of family violence and identifying attitudes that underpin violence against women. And I'm going to get through that in 20 minutes and talk really, really fast. Um, I'm talking very specifically about the gendered nature of family violence, so I'm talking about male perpetrators and female victims, that's the framework that I'm speaking from, Um, of course acknowledging that violence does occur outside of that dynamic, but that's just the focus for me tonight. Um, I really, before I start, of course, want to acknowledge also that we are um, meeting on Aboriginal land and just pay my respects to all Aboriginal people, uh, including Elders past, present, future and emerging. Um, and also to acknowledge survivors of violence that are in the room today and just uh, honour the strength and resilience of, of those people who have experienced abuse um, and just to always remember to, particularly when we're talking about violence, to continue looking after each other. So I'm just going to launch in. Um, looking at or thinking about when perpetrators are, are outed um, by the victim of violence, often what happens is that Um, She is not believed, or she's partly believed, but partly blamed. So often we might say things like, you know, he's always been really nice to me. So we sort of enter this space of disbelief. Um, Or we think, well, why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense. Or why did she stay? Or why didn't she just leave? 
So what's interesting about all of these responses is that we spend more time blaming the victim um, rather than believing her. And we do it because in many ways it's easier. We, as a community, as a, as a broad community, but also in our, in our smaller communities, hold onto stereotypes of who perpetrators are. Um, but actually, perpetrators of family violence rarely fit that stereotype. And certainly when I started doing men's behaviour change, that's one of the most alarming aspects of that work for me because prior to that, I'd only ever worked with women and kids who were victims of family violence and had heard about the perpetrators through their stories. Um, so I always had an image of what he might have looked like in my mind and since doing the work, working with men, um, that's just, that just hasn't been the case at all. Obviously, when we're holding on to stereotypes of perpetrators of family violence, we will often miss key indicators that someone uses tactics of coercive control, um, even when the victim tells us what he's done. Now, in terms of the traits that, are, that, that perpetrators of family violence um, generally have um, or generally possess, the first one, I'm going to go through these in a little bit more detail, um, but I'm also aware that they're probably pretty obvious in and of themselves. But, of course, the first one is, is male entitlement, which includes, of course, gender role expectation. So that's gender role expectation that he holds about himself, but also that he imposes upon his family members. The second is a victim stance, and the third is violent supportive attitude. And that they exist in a society where gender inequality is both the cause and consequence um, of violence against women, that it sets the necessary context for violence against women to occur. Um, so male entitlement is the, um, for anyone who needs an explanation of what male entitlement is, that it's the conviction that men are owed something by virtue of their gender. So it's a given. It's the belief structure that tells men that they deserve to have their whims catered to, both culturally and interpersonally. Um, and one of the most harmful elements of male entitlement is the blind belief in the right to control uh, and have power over women. And also male perpetrators often really aggressively deny the existence of male entitlement or male privilege. Um, and that's one of the huge challenges of our work in, uh, in working with male perpetrators of family violence. Uh, often it's met with significant <laughs> resistance, particularly if I mention it. Anthony, who's sitting here, is um, my co-facilitator in Men's Behaviour Change. Um, and they, they find it a lot easier to hear it from him than from me, which I think is interesting. Uh, a victim starts, so when these perceived rights are not met, um, male perpetrators of family violence can fall into victim stance, and a victim stance is a moral position whereby he feels that he's always right, and any challenge to this authority is met uh, with behaviours that women and children experience as controlling, frightening, silencing, and dangerous. So often when we're working with victims of family violence and we ask them, you know, what happens when you and your partner disagree? The response to that question gives us a lot of information about how, how much freedom does she have to have an opinion or to challenge the authority of her, her husband or her male partner. And the violence supportive attitude, which obviously is an attitude or a belief system or a moral compass that supports or condones violence or violence against women, and that can be in so many different ways. Um, but, of course, within the context, within patriarchal context, it's imperative that any family violence intervention prioritises the impact, not the intent of the violence. That if we start to think about the intent of the violence, then we're going to fall back into, well, why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. And we stop listening to her. Now, perpetrator accountability. Does anyone in the room work in the community services sector? Can I just get a show of hands? Oh, cool. Good. Um, so perpetrator accountability is, I think, a re relatively new term in the, in the community services sector. Um, and I think that what's interesting about this term is that often, uh, as support workers, we think of perpetrator accountability and we think about uh, that he needs to be held accountable by the police and by the magistrates and by a consistent legal response. But we, it's so important, of course, and we've obviously heard from very clever people tonight that accountability needs to be so much more than that. And in the work that we do with perpetrators, we think about who does he need to be accountable to and who do we need to be accountable to. And that has to be victims at all times. 
So he needs to be accountable to the, to the people that he's harmed, and so do we. So in the work that we're doing with male perpetrators of family violence, we need to always imagine his family in the room, looking at us, saying, how are you going to help me? And even if we've never met them, we can just sort of imagine that they're standing there, and that's who we need to be accountable to. Now, in terms of the cultural context, the social determinants, and this is from the... Um, this is from uh, the Change the Story, which is the National Framework for Violence Against Women. This, I just want to say, in terms of this, this being the context that we all exist within, and that some of us may still hold on to some of these beliefs without even realising that we have them. So this is about... So the, the sort of ideas here, these determinants or causes and the societal context, the first one being the condoning of violence against women. So we've got a pretty good example today where a football player got a really harsh penalty of three games not... Does anyone follow this? The Richmond player, he shared a photo of a half-naked woman's body and it's just it's awful. And the response was that he now doesn't get to play three games of football and that's it. And I just think that... And, and that they think, well, he's now been held accountable. But actually that hasn't happened at all. Um, sorry. So I still got bullets. It's not for team. Also, the men's control of decision making and limits to women's independence, which comes back to that male entitlement and the victim stance. Uh, the stereotyped constructions of masculinity. So we look at gender role expectation and what that means, but also what happens when somebody wants to step outside of their gender role and what are the consequences for that person. And then disrespect towards women and male peer relations that emphasise aggression. So, these things, that these the context that we exist within, which means that it makes condoning and colluding with violence very easy. Um, and certainly there has been widespread community um, collusion with men's violence against women throughout generations, uh, which can make avoiding collusion difficult. So we need to develop skills to be able to identify and respond to attitudes that underpin um, and support violence against women. They're not always easy to identify. You know, we're like fish in the water who don't know that we're wet. So in terms of condoning and colluding, so some examples of this, um, I mean, essentially a definition of, of colluding is of allowing his disclosures, justifications or smoke screens uh, and blaming to pass without comment. So where we might remain silent... So some of that might be that he's agreed, that we're agreeing with or remaining silent regarding disparaging comments about his partner's mental health. So often perpetrators will do a, put in a lot of work to make us think that she's crazy and it's a really successful tactic and he might be putting in the groundwork for that for a long time, which means that when she finally does disclose that she's experiencing abuse, we're going to think that's a symptom of her illness. Uh, and that could also include uh, making disparaging comments about her AOD use or parenting skills. And given that we have incredibly low expectations of fathers but incredibly high expectations of mothers, those tactics really work. Uh, another example of collusion could be agreeing with his comments about provocation. So he might be, you know, sort of talking about that she pushes his buttons in some way. Maybe she nags. And then we, we may think that well, he was provoked, he was pushed, she pushes him constantly. So what did she expect? So ignoring comments that reinforce gender stereotypes and gender role expectation. And one sort of flippant example is constant jokes about how much money she spends on shoes. Now, that seems really funny, but we hear that so often, um, just in everyday places, that that seems to be... The one way to harm women is to insult how much they like shoes. So that sort of gender stereotypes, even as jokes, are incredibly harmful. Um, nodding or laughing or smiling at his jokes about women. Uh, telling him how great it is that he's changing or being honest. So one of the interesting things, and Anthony's going to talk about this also, is when we talk to perpetrators in isolation we can get very convinced that they're doing a very, very good job of taking responsibility, but then we talk to victims and actually that isn't the case at all. He's just being compliant. He's just telling us what he thinks we want to hear and he's using those manipulative tactics against us that he uses at home with her. So we need to be very careful about buying into that, into those ideas. Um, 
and likewise saying that you want to hear about family violence from a man's point of view and looking at that sort of two sides to every story perspective. So these are just some examples of, um, of collusion and you can see how harmful they can be. So obviously when we're thinking about accountability frameworks, um, we need to be considering collusion as a huge risk. Um, and in avoiding collusion, there are a number of things that are quite important, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but one of the first things that we need to do is to prioritise the impact of the behaviour, not the intent. As I said earlier, if we start to focus on the intent of his behaviour, we're going to get into all of these weird excuses and smoke screens that he uses, because what could possibly justify the harm that he's caused? If we continue to prioritise the impact of the abuse, then we're going to hold survivor voices front and centre. We need to believe women's experiences of male violence and everyday sexism. So when women talk about, you know, being um, catcalled or being ignored in meetings, that those things are real. They are things that happen every day. They're not just um, true when men talk about them. They're true when women talk about them. Of course, challenging gender stereotypes is fundamental. Um, gender stereotypes are incredibly harmful uh, and, uh, and oppressive. Of course, we need to become aware of our own unconscious bias, particularly of the stereotypes that we ourselves might hold, that if we're not um, feeling... Um, if we're starting to make assumptions about who the perpetrators are and who the victims are, then that means that we've got some work to do. And we need to understand women and children's response to family violence, including the resilience and the ways in which they resist the violence, which we may not always be able to see. And often we might think that we would respond differently given the same circumstances, but there's no evidence at all that that's true. And women will often resist violence in ways that we just can't identify. Um, and, of course, we need to understand the barriers to safety, and those barriers to safety... Um, can be so varied and so incredibly... Like, the list of, in terms of barriers to safety is so incredibly long for so many women. Um, but knowing what they are is really important, particularly so that we can resist that impulse to say, why doesn't she just leave? And finally, we need to keep women and children in the room and to always use their name. And... You may notice when you have conversations with those who use violence in their relationships that one of the things they refuse to do is say her name. And that's, uh, that's a tactic also to dehumanise her. But we need to really bring that back and bring her uh, into the room. Um, in, the, in men's behaviour change work, we, um, we get women to wear... So we get the, the men in the room to wear um, his name, uh, but also the name of his partner, so she, so that we can remember her name and so they can all see her in the room with us. Some really practical tactics, but he needs to be, he needs to remember that he's accountable to her and it keeps us really clear about why we're there and who our client is. Uh, Anthony Lekas is a counsellor and family violence practitioner at Victorian AIDS Council. He has worked in the not-for-profit community services sector for 14 years, as well as in private practice. Anthony will discuss the work ABAC are doing with same-sex attracted men in family violence perpetrator programs with a particular focus on the importance of working from an accountability framework by centralising victim or survivor voices in all aspects of service provision and developing a formal observer program. Anthony will share the challenges and growth areas ABAC have encountered with this framework. Hi. So, Ada's... Um presentation is a, is a lovely segue into mine, so I'll try not to repeat um, anything because there are some similarities, but, um, but firstly I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on, acknowledge um, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and particularly their LGBTI um, elders also uh, past, present and um, those to come. So I've been involved with the Men's Behaviour Change Program at um, the Victorian AIDS Council since 2014. Um, there's some really interesting things happening in the men's behaviour change program space generally um, and, and also back. Um, I was just saying to Ada, I'm probably going to um, complain a lot um, tonight and I'm not going to have too many answers, but um, 
that's just where I'm at. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I, I want to start off by saying is that I, this is just my view, it's not Bax's view, so I do want a job to go back to in the morning, but um, I think the men's behaviour change program space um, is in a lot of trouble. And um, there, there's a, a couple of reasons for it, um, and, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that. So, um. Ooh. Um, so Jesus. So I'm not going to go into the nuts and bolts of the Men's Behaviour Change Program. So, um, so I just wanted to read out that last point, that I think this is where we get confused in... Um, um, so... So in, um, I've been working in mainstream men's behaviour change programs since 2010, so I've, I've been able to see some of the differences and similarities that, that occur in the queer NBC space versus mainstream spaces. And, and I think one of the, um, one of the main um, tensions, uh, I guess confusions about the work, is that um, you know, what are our roles as facilitators in that space? Who do we represent? Um, and what framework are we using when we're working with perpetrators in the room? I guess Ada said it earlier when, when she said, who are our clients? Um, and when we're using an accountability framework to work with perpetrators in a very short period of time, I mean, we've got, at back, we've got 12 weeks with these guys. Um, you know, most, some of them won't get a chance to say a word at, at every particular session. You know, if they speak for 10 minutes per week, 10 by 12 minutes, we're not getting a lot of time really um, scrutinising their behaviour and learning about the, what they understand about um, the impact their violence has on their partners. So, so we don't have a lot of time with them, um, and, um, and that's a problem for a whole range of reasons. But if we understand our roles as being advocates for their partners, um, that we aren't there for them, uh, for the, sorry, the, the perpetrators in the room, we're there for the partners, then we actually need to be very as intimately um, connected and involved with their experiences as possible. And quite a number of men's behaviour change program facilitators come into this space never at all having worked with victims of family violence. Including myself, actually. It's just been the last two years where I've started doing partner contact work at BAC and I've um, I've started to understand more and more how problematic it is if facilitators take their seats in those groups without knowing about victims' experiences. Um, so we hear the word feminist framework at, um, in LGBTI spaces when we're, um, uh, when we're talking about family violence and it starts to make people a little bit anxious because we um, might assume that a gendered lens can't apply to a same-sex couple. Um, I think this is just a, an issue with semantics. I think if we understand the feminist framework being directly connected to the work that we can do with same-sex attracted men. So I'll, I'll talk about same-sex attracted men, that's cisgendered men, in relationships with same-sex attracted cisgendered men. We haven't worked with trans men in, in our space. Um, then we're talking about an anti-oppressive framework. We're talking about a framework where one partner has... Um, access to power and resources that he uses in ways to dominate his partner and control his partner and ultimately abuse that partner in sometimes quite fatal ways. Um, so, the you know, revisioning is a 12-week program. It's two hours um, a week. Um, we do have a, the partner contact service, which is, which is the most, has been the most neglected part of our group um, up until probably the last two years, since the Royal Commission, actually, where we've started to understand, we've had to look at our program very carefully and look at the areas that we need to improve it to really honour victims' experiences. So I'm just going to I'm going to use the word victims and perpetrator, if that's okay. Um, when I said that um, NBC programs are in a lot of trouble, I meant uh, I was thinking about the fact that um, a lot of practitioners are employed based on their qualifications. Um, psychologists, social workers, um, you know, counsellors, and they're employed based on those particular skills and training that they've had at university or in other spaces um, to um, strengthen up that particular way of working. So we're talking about therapeutic approaches, which 
um, is, is again is problematic because when we're talking about therapy, we're talking about the person sitting in front of us as our client. We're, we're talking about terms like person-centered approaches, where we let the client follow, where we follow the client, we let them uh, take us into the, their world and help us to understand what, what life is like for them. Um, when we do that, we're colluding. <laughs> so, um, and often we get a very sanitized version of the abuse that's happening in that relationship. Um, it's quite remarkable because, I mean, I, you know, should, shouldn't be surprised about it. We, we know it's been happening for a long time. But having done the partner contact work, um, it's constantly reinforced that what the men share in the program is a very um, small account of what happens at home. And often they don't, what they don't get to know about or even talk about in the groups is... Um, just how hard the victim works to maintain their own safety. So most of the family violence that um, won't get disclosed in the group by perpetrators are more of those invisible forms of violence, the ones that aren't so clear to any of us if we were to peep through the window of their family home and watch the way they interact, that we wouldn't be able to see the level of coercion and just the, the threat of violence occurring and how that dominates and controls the decision-making of the victim. Um, that's the stuff perpetrators don't want to know about. Sometimes they, um, or, and they definitely don't want to talk about it. Um, what they do want to talk about is the thing that they've been charged for, the thing that got the police called to their property, the um, more visible forms of violence. So things like, so the criminal offences basically, assault, property damage, threats to life. Um, things that they can, I guess, more easily be held accountable for by the criminal justice system. Um, I, just This myth is one that I, I hear quite a lot in queer spaces, especially for same-sex male relationship violence, um, where I've heard police use this language as well, where they talk about the primary and secondary aggressor. Who's the primary aggressor? Who is the secondary aggressor? And I know that police have certain protocols that they... Um, have to follow when they attend a property during a family violence call out um, and they often um, ask if there's a woman present in the house which is um, I guess what occurs and what occurred in one instance um, for a um, same-sex male relationship we worked with is that the police asked them three times if there was a woman in the house and they were trying to explain they were, they were a same-sex couple um, I, I, I agree and I understand why they need to ask that question, but I guess when we think about that particular couple, the victim in that relationship, I wonder what message it sends to him about um, who indeed is a true victim of family violence and, and where the focus and interest lies in terms of who they need to support in a sort of automatic way, rather than inquiring about the nature of their relationship. I, look, I don't, I don't know what the answer is for that. I mean, the overwhelming majority of family violence um, uh, is perpetrated by men to um, female victims and children. Um, there, there, is, uh, there are discussions in the literature to suggest that it happens just as often in queer relationships, but, yeah. Um, primary and secondary aggressor, that language mutualises violence. Um, it suggests that the victim who decides to fight back after days, years, months of being bullied is um, also... That, that, that fight back is also considered in the same way as the um, perpetrator's violence is. Um, and that's, that's harmful to, victim, to the victim. Um, sometimes um, in these instances, the couple might be referred to couples counselling. And... Again, in couples therapy, we're using therapeutic frameworks to address a relationship issue, and family violence is not a relationship issue. Um, you know, I've, 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 I do couples therapy as well, and I know some organisations refer um, same-sex male um, couples to when there's been family violence present to couples therapy. Couples therapy, um, I guess we there, there's an assumption that um, both parties. Um, uh, contribute to the conflict in their relationship 
uh, in some in some sort of equal way. Like they co-create the tension and the dynamic that can't that gets stirs up between them, and then they explore the ways that that might happen. Um, so so both of them are placed responsibilities placed on both of them sort of equally for for what happens in their relationship. And the message to the victim there is that you're partly responsible for the abuse that you're experiencing. Uh, I mean, what a horrible message to send a victim. So we've tried to look at ways to increase um, our accountability processes and responses to um, same-sex male uh, family violence at BAC. Um, so um, we're, we're asking ourselves, who are we accountable to? Um, and obviously it's always the victim. So how do we increase that happening? How do we enhance our accountability processes to the victim? Um, so we think about the framework that we're using um, and also how to centralise their voices at every turn. So every question that we ask the men in the perpetrator program, um, every response that we have is designed to honour their experiences and to, to prioritise the needs and the interests of the victim um, at every turn. Um, and the men don't like that. You know, they don't like the focus taken off, um, you know, perhaps what might have been going on for them in that moment and how frustrated they might feel and how challenging life is for them. And, and that's all fine. Like, if life's difficult and, um, and, and they're having all sorts of issues in family life or at work or whatever, there are other places to do that sort of work. But it can't happen in men's behaviour change programs and we're seeing that happen in those spaces. One of the ways that we have been able to um, uh, strengthen up our connection to an accountability framework, uh, so the feminist model of um, doing perpetrator work, is to ensure that we um, uh, have supervision by a clinical supervisor who also um, uses that particular framework. I mean, it might sound like, you know, no shit, right? Um, that doesn't always happen. Um, and I think sort of widely in men's behaviour change program spaces, partly because of funding and lack of resources and um, access to be able, sorry, um, capacity to source um, supervisors who, um, who, who adopt these frameworks to do the work, um, that in mainstream services sometimes supervision is um, handled by a... Um, task focus supervisor or um, team direct um, line manager or sometimes someone who's never done family violence work as well. Um, at BAC, um, we've been very privileged to have um, Tracy Castellino and Ada Conroy um, supervise our family violence team. Um, so um, I'm sort of confident in, with the direction we're heading in. Um, and that's also partly because we've been encouraged to provide an observer program um, to members of the community to come in to scrutinise the work that we are doing as facilitators so, so that we're accountable also to the community, not just to the framework, not just to the partners, but to the community. Um, and we need, we need to do that. Well, one way we're doing that is via an observer program. So um, it's important that um, observers do come in and um, have a look at the work that's been done with perpetrators and the way that... We do hold on to the voices of um, partners and, um, and children in the space. Um, and one way we do that is we give them um, questionnaires, uh, sort of like a tick box sort of feedback sheet for them to rate the level of facilitation, um, sorry, sort of whether the level of facilitation is strongly connected to the framework. And they're very specific questions that we ask that they um, examine the co-facilitation, also the responses that facilitators um, um, uh, use in the group. Um, that element of public scrutiny in this work is really important. It broadens that level of accountability for perpetrators. They need to know that this isn't a private group and a space that happens here on this night, on this particular day, that members of the community will come into this program, they will listen to what they're saying um, and um, observers often take notes as well for themselves. They're free to do that if they want to, um, if something comes up for them that they need, they would like to record. But um, there are some confidentiality um, uh, expectations around um, what sort of information can and can't be shared um, outside of the group space. But, you know, 
I guess when we talk about limited confidentiality, we hear that word being used. I mean, we're really saying no confidentiality, it looks like. Aren't we? <laughs> I didn't say that. So, um, one of the, uh, so, we, so we've got a, a, for, a formal observer program structure. So, um, people who are coming to observe our program, we've had Drummond Street Services come and observe, observe the last group. Um, we've got people from the AOD, AOD sector and um, who else? And other social workers, other practitioners come and observe um, this current group. And um, <clears throat> so we have a responsibility to prepare people for this work because most of the people who have come in to observe our program to assess and examine the work that the facilitators are doing. Um, I think most of the people who have observed this have never done any family violence work. So, like, they've got a pretty bloody big job ahead of them to come into this group to, to, to give us something that we're going to highly value, but what's in it for them? Um, <coughs> so I guess they get to learn about the work that we do. Um, they get to learn about how um, perpetrators talk about their partners, um, how they talk about their violence, um, and how it's important to remain cynical about this work um, and also to, um, to not take anything on face value. We're lucky that we have the partner contact service to provide us weekly information about what partners are saying about what's happening at home. And like Ada said, it's often very different to what's being presented in the group. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to say quickly about... Um, we're getting better at looking after our observers, so we, we, you know, they come into an information session to start off with where we talk to them about something. Um, kind of Annalise, you um, emailed recently about the difference between anger management and men's behaviour change programs. So that's something we really need to be clear about. That accountability framework in men's behaviour change program is very... Anger management really focuses on the needs and uh, the sort of... Uh, um, personal process of the perpetrator and what he needs to do to manage himself as opposed to understanding the impact his abuse has on his partner um, in a sort of uh, systemic and ongoing way. Um, so we expect observers to observe at least three sessions. Um, it's really important to um, not just walk away with one example of what happens in a group, but, but over time um, you get to see the ways the stories can change and how also men can sort of use more covert ways of covering up their violence and, um, um, and look for others, perhaps um, sort of, um, I don't know what word to use, interesting ways of describing their, their abuse when they're still minimising and justifying at week 12. Um, so, so we provide supervision to our observers as well. Uh, we offer them an opportunity um, to sit in a um, reflective practice um, session at the end of the program so that the, the family violence staff at back is like a fishbowl kind of activity but we get to sit outside the circle and listen to the observers share their experiences of what it was like um, to observe a group. Um, so we acknowledge that it can be very difficult for people who are observing these groups to provide um, feedback in a way that might challenge the facilitation or might question some of the decision making that was made by facilitators. So we're trying to find ways that we can do that where observers can feel more confident and okay about providing that level of feedback. And that might mean that um, the facilitators aren't in the room when that um, feedback is provided. So we're learning about this. So this, I just wanted to um, end with this work is messy. Like, I, you know, I've got some criticisms to say and judgments to make about men's behaviour change programs. I mean, they pay my bills, I'm still there. But um, it's, it's, it's messy, it's, it's interesting work. Um, it's, um, I think the most um, important thing for me is that we're getting better at uh, trying to um, um, more honestly represent victims' voices in, that, in those spaces. Because those groups are actually for victims, they're not there for the perpetrators who are sitting in their seats every week. Um, and I think that's something that um, NBC providers are still trying to decide on. Um, so maybe I'll just leave it there. Um, Anthony Kelly has over 25 years of experience in human rights advocacy, strategic social justice campaigning and community development. Prior to joining the Flemington Kensington Legal Centre in early 2011, he was coordinator of the Men's Referral Service 
for seven years, among many other significant roles with community legal centres and social justice organisations. Anthony will discuss the Police Accountability Vic work. And within this project, they predominantly apply state, institutional or legal forms of accountability upon the police, as well as leverage various forms of moral, ethical and community-based mechanisms. Anthony will also discuss gay and lesbian, queer street patrols, Aboriginal night patrols and community patrols, safety projects uh, and police alternative projects. Um, that was brilliant. Um, what an honour to be on a panel like this. I hope this is useful. And um, um, I'm going to be specific about uh, the police accountability work we do in Victoria to start off with. And to, I'm going to go back into some history, uh, primarily for reasons which I hope will become obvious. Um, for those of you who don't know, community legal centres uh, were started in Australia in the very early 70s, the first one being Redfern Legal Service up in Sydney after um, local activists uh, responded to intense racialized, discriminatory and brutal policing in the area and um, a bunch of radical lawyers and activists formed um, the first community legal centre and it was followed quickly by uh, Fitzroy Legal Service and again formed in also in response to um, some pretty brutal policing around the inner city and around the time, followed closely by St Kilda and Broadmeadows and Monash and, and Flemington Kensington was uh, formed uh, in 1980. And again, all of these community legal centres all around Australia were essentially people like ourselves, activists, community advocates and organisers, recognising that the criminal justice system was failing marginalised, vulnerable communities. It was... Um, uh, not responding to people or it was brutalising people in various ways and so we had to set up establishments that were community controlled, community run and that provided people with access to um, forms of justice that would somehow meet their needs and try and um, maintain some space and some, um, yeah, some basically justice and redress for those people who didn't have access to... Um, to the justice system. Uh, around that time in the early 70s, and before my time, uh, Saul Alinsky, the, the US organiser's uh, book was over here, The Rules for Radicals. Um, some of you might remember, but be aware of him, he's making a bit of a uh, resurgence at the moment over in, in various US and Australian circles. But one of his many adages was um, build organisations, not campaigns. And basically, under the awareness that um, campaigns can be, f be powerful and flash in the pan, but it also can evaporate, whereas uh, building community power to beat the sort of entrenched, systemic, uh, industrial-scale violence that communities were facing, we needed to build organisations that were sustainable and resilient and could maintain um, resistance over a long period of time. And so his philosophy, is, and amongst that time, saw the development of 3CR, Friends of the Earth, Red Planet Posters, a whole heap of community-based, community-controlled organisations, and some of which still exist today, such as community legal centres. The community health movement was also um, uh, emerging around that time as well, for similar reasons. Um, so... And that's something that I've realised being part of the community legal sector for a while is that um, struggles and campaigns and issues that, um, that the founders were dealing with back in the early 70s and right throughout the 80s, we're still dealing with today. Uh, and I'll just give a few uh, examples to illustrate that, one of which uh, our centre was intensely involved in, which was the police shootings campaign. Uh, for those of you who don't know, between 87 and 89, Victoria Police shot 11 people um, fatally. Uh, and four of those people were, had families or were connected or lived in the Flemington area. And our centre became intimately um, uh, involved with the campaign for justice for those families. Uh, the, the campaign involved mass public meetings and lots of rallies and uh, also, in coronial inquests, uh, six police officers were charged with murder. Uh, there was um, uh, uh, 
and the eventual disbandment of the armed, um, the armed robbery squad, which was responsible for lots of the killings. And some of the most major reforms we'd seen in Victoria, um, Project Beacon, a massive retraining of the entire police force. and um, Police shootings, because of that campaign, essentially police shootings dropped off considerably in the years after that. Uh, but it was incredibly um, intense, and um, our centre was in the thick of it. But one thing to note is that we've still got cases and um, campaigns from those days in the early 80s. We're still trying to get a... Uh, coronal inquiry reopened into the killing of Graham Jensen uh, in um, '87. That was, um, uh, and the police involved in that are now assistant commissioners. So, it's a it's a campaign for accountability that's lasted for over 20 years, uh, and it's just one example. Karina Horvath was a young woman who was brutally assaulted and hospitalised by local police in Narrawarra in 1996. We weren't involved in her early struggles through the, the complaint system and through the civil courts, which all of which ultimately failed her. But we did take her case to the United Nations Human Rights Committee in 2008, and it took another six years for the decision to eventually be handed down in 2014. And that decision was quite substantial. It was one of the most rapidly responded to decisions to come from the from United Nations Human Rights um, Committee uh, in regard to Australia, uh, that uh, Karina Horvath, within a year of that decision handed down, she received a written apology from the Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police. She received quite uh, some reparations from the State of Victoria that replicated her early civil um, cases that she should have got 10 years earlier. And the police officer, one of the police officers involved is now facing charges. Uh, so that, that campaign was literally eight, 19, 20 years um, her struggle for justice and accountability took that long. Um, the, many of you might be familiar with the, the discriminatory policing campaigns that we've been running and are still running today. Tamar Hopkins, our then principal solicitor, began hearing complaints uh, from young African, Afghani, Indigenous men in the Flemington region of incredibly brutal policing uh, in the local area, and she initially started off um, putting in formal complaints to the uh, what was then the Ethical Standards Department of Victoria Police. They universally came back as unsubstantiated, in other words, failed to provide any sort of redress or accountability. Uh, she tried to get systemic reviews from what was then the Office of Police Integrity, the oversight body at the time. They refused to look into the, to the matter. Uh, after a while, there was um, 16 young men who took the Victoria Police to the, to the uh, Human Rights Committee for mediation. That mediation fell down. And then finally, in 2010, a, an action was launched in the federal court under the Race Discrimination Act, um, charging Victoria Police nine officers in the state of Victoria with systemic discrimination through racial profiling. That case was eventually settled in February 2013 with the police acknowledging that discrimination was harmful and that they would undertake a public inquiry into, into um, uh, their practices and training and that culminated in a three-year action plan called the Equalities Not the Same process which did achieve some substantial reforms, probably some of the most substantial since Project Beacon, uh, and it's still a campaign that we're still running today. And the reason I'm mentioning all of these and the years, so that was 2005 and six when we started to receive those complaints, so now 11 years later, we're still running cases and advocacy work around racial profiling and discriminatory policing. So 11 years, Karina Horvath was 19, 20 years, and the police shootings campaign was even longer. So it's taken us as an organisation that sustainability that to maintain those struggles for accountability using available mechanisms. So you've got to, probably got a sense of the more, um, ones that we've been using already. The formal complaint system, fundamentally flawed, police investigating police, we recognise the desperately flawed is the 
a quote from Lauren I just picked up then. Um, many of these institutional responses, um, these accountability mechanisms that a state runs are incredibly desperately flawed. Um, we use them to the greatest extent possible, but they take years. The Human Rights Commission, the decision you have to, to, to get a decision through the Human Rights Committee, you have to, ex, to have to exhaust all domestic remedies and then literally wait years for a decision that may or may not have any impact on the, um, on the human rights abusers. Um, it's only because we have a sustainable infrastructure of a community legal centre that was established 30, 36 years ago, 37 years ago, that we are able to run these campaigns for accountability that last this long. Um, so, um, like many struggles are intergenerational over periods of time, over long periods of time, some of these struggles for accountability are also intergenerational in terms of they were started by people long before Lauren and I started working at the centre. And they're probably going to be finished by people that come after us. Um, the, the structures that we... Um, the structures that we use, the human rights... Um, the accountability bodies, the ombudsmans, the uh, complaint bodies, the human rights commissions... Uh, one, things one of the things I've recognised is flawed as they are, they were established uh, through campaigns um, decades and sometimes centuries before us by activists like ourselves in this room calling out for accountability. And they were often responses by the state to establish some sort of accountability against excesses and abuses. So the human rights mechanisms that we knew, knew globally were in response to the conflagration of World War II and the responses of states around the world to set up um, mechanisms and legal frameworks that would reduce um, the violence of the state against their own populations. Uh, they, are fatal, they are in some cases fatally flawed. They don't work fast enough. There's not enough rigour and power in those mechanisms. And all of them, all of those mechanisms only work if there is popular, sustained and powerful community um, mobilisations that force any of those institutions and the people inside them to, to take concrete action. Um, the, the reason why Karina Horvath's Human Rights Commission decision was so quickly uh, responded to was because we put a hell of a lot of weight and advocacy behind it we mobilised around that decision and made the, made the most of it to maximise its outcome. Um, so we're working, one of the tensions that um, we, we feel continually working in the community legal centre and doing this police accountability work is that uh, the reforms that we are advocating for um, don't never go far enough. They also, the systems that we work with never work fast enough and uh, as much as we can bring as much clout through the civil courts, we sue police on a continual basis, we, we defend um, people who are victims of police abuse as much as we possibly can, and using every legal avenue that we can, um, it never feels enough. Uh, one of the side um, uh, sort of areas of research that I've been attracted to for about 20 years or so is how do we create alternatives to the police and of course and many other people of course are interested in that field and there's been lots of literature and research on it before and I've tended to focus on the idea of um, community street patrols and night, and night patrols uh, which I'll talk about briefly before, before I finish. Um, Alternatives to police, as you can imagine, is incredibly fraught and also incredibly difficult. Police in any jurisdiction form one of the most powerful institutions uh, in that area. So Victoria Police have 18,000 members. They um, have um, extremely large budgets and resources, but also um, they have a wield extraordinary political power. Um, they can make or break elections, and they have routinely um, done that. And that's similar to police forces around um, in the states and, and throughout Australia. Um, the reason the, the police forces themselves are the largest single block to any reforms uh, that um, popular movements such as Black Lives Matter um, strive to create. The police unions and the police 
police forces themselves, uh, just simply through their political power. Um, so f forming popular or people-orientated people alternatives to such a force seems um, fraught. I often think in terms of the Lilliputian uh, image uh, for those you know, familiar with Gulliver's, Gulliver's Travels, washed up on a beach with a local tiny population throw ropes all over, all over him to hold him down onto the beach. And sometimes uh, working in this space, it feels a little bit like that. Each, each little rope might hold down um, this huge um, mega force, uh, one iota, but collectively we might have a um, some sort of um, response. Now, um, community street patrols are prolific. Everywhere you go, there are organised responses to hate-motivated violence and, um, um, and various forms of violence within the community. And that's one thing I found in any sort of research for these, these things. And they take many, many forms. Um, some of the earliest were the, um, organised by the Black Panthers in the US in the 60s. Uh, the American Indian Movement had street patrols in the 70s. There are some amazing community policing models in Mexico, some organised by the Chiapas, but throughout, throughout Mexico, really viable, large-scale um, community policing options. Uh, in Australia, we've seen a whole, a whole heap, and a, and a lot of the Aboriginal night patrols have been inspiring with their impact and effectiveness. Uh, the end of moon night patrols that started in the mid-'80s by grandmothers, aunties, high-status women walking around the communities with null and nullers and, and um, um, dealing with the glue sniffing and uh, family fighting in, in the community were, in, were incredibly effective. In the first year that they operated, um, incidents of family fighting and deaths by rollovers um, and were dropped by up to 80%. And in, anyone familiar with anti-violence projects, mainstream or otherwise, that sort of decline in violence is virtually unprecedented. Um, Violence sort of, you know, those sort of indicators levelled out a little bit as the um, um, in subsequent years, but that the, the impact of those sort of night patrols were quite extraordinary, uh, and also they're prolific around Australia in communities uh, in Western Australia, Northern Territory, here in Victoria, and extraordinarily impactful and effective. And like many other community-based responses, um, chronically underfunded and under-resourced. Um, but do reflect an extraordinarily effective community response um, to violence. Um, in the early 90s, after a whole series of um, gay murders and then also um, homophobic violence in around Darlinghurst in the in, in city, Sydney, um, there was an anti-violence project established and lesbian and gay street patrols started operating in, a, in 1989 and then 90 and then another version in 91. And they were also incredibly effective in straight away responding to hate-motivated attacks as they happened, intervening with whistles. And there was the, at the peak, they had about 20 or 25 patrols operating at once, people operating in patrols at once. And um, instantaneously, and, and what they noticed straight away is that the neglect that the police had, um, had demonstrated to homophobic attacks uh, instantly changed, and suddenly the police were responsive to call-outs and to hate, you know, to that sort of violence. Um, so I guess, and also there is a framework for these street patrols. Um, there's some really valuable insights from street patrols around the way. Most, like Lauren was referring to, most were um, um, community responses um, that were quite that were set up without much theory. Uh, set up in response to violence that was occurring, either police violence or police neglect or um, targeted violence against that particular community, and set up without many, without much theory and principles, and now often with um, without much knowledge of other patrols and other initiatives that were similar around us, uh, around the world. Um, but there is a whole series of um, uh, very clear. Um, um, principles that that make these patrols uh, most effective and of course one of the ones is around um, the community connection and democratic systems of decision making and connection ongoing connection with community they're very also easy to shift to vigilante mode and there's there's also a distinction between these sort of community street patrols and vigilante groups 
which can very easily shift to violence towards even more marginalised communities. You know, yeah, so we're seeing those sort of vigilante groups in Alice at the moment. Uh, and also here in Melbourne. Um, uh, and so they're also really, they're also really concerning. So the, the, level, the, the response and the framework that these sort of street patrols have is, um, is critical, not only to their, to their effect, but about their reducing their overall level of violence and their ability to stay outside the, um, the violence of the criminal justice system. Uh, and I think I might leave it there, if it's okay. Thanks very much.